0: From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is the ER. This week, the Iran nuclear deal. In a few weeks, the United States will impose more harsh sanctions on Iran, some of which target the country's oil industry and central bank. President Trump announced the new sanctions back in August. President Trump tweeted, these are the most biting sanctions ever imposed. He also said, anyone doing business with Iran will not be doing business with the U.S. The sanctions are bound up with Trump's decision earlier this year to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, as it's officially called. America will not be held hostage to nuclear blackmail. We will not allow American cities to be threatened with destruction. The deal was one of the Obama administration's signature diplomatic achievements, the product of years of negotiations, both secret and public. At the center of those negotiations was Wendy Sherman. In her role as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, she parsed through grueling details and brought together two very skeptical sides until an agreement was reached in 2015. This deal demonstrates that American diplomacy can bring about real and meaningful change. Change that makes our country and the world safer and more secure. This deal is also in line with a tradition of American leadership. Those experiences are detailed in Wendy Sherman's new memoir, Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence. These days she's working with her old boss, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, at the consulting firm Albright-Stoneridge in Washington. That's where we caught up with her. Wendy Sherman, thank you so much for joining us.
1: I'm delighted to be here with you.
0: I want to actually ask you to put us in the room the first time you met your counterparts, Iranian counterparts? Where were you? What did it feel like?
1: Actually, the real substantive negotiations began in 2013, when Rouhani became president. And President Obama, having already begun a secret channel with the Iranians, but one which had been not getting anywhere, thought he might have some traction. And he had asked Ambassador Bill Burns, the diplomat's diplomat, along with Jake Sullivan— who is by now the national security advisor for Vice President Biden, to conduct these secret negotiations, which were beginning to get traction. I was at the UN uh, General Assembly as the undersecretary and was set to meet the gentlemen who were going to become my counterparts, the Iranian negotiators, Abbas Arachi and Majid Ravanchi, uh, over in the hotel where Bill and Jake We're having these bilateral secret talks on the margins of the General Assembly. So I jumped in a cab without any staff, went over to meet them. It was a fairly staid and formalized meeting. But not long after that, at the UN General Assembly, for the first time, all of the foreign ministers of P5 plus 1 countries, including John Kerry, uh, were set to meet with Javad Zarif who is now head of the negotiations, Iran's foreign minister. This would be the first meeting between a U.S. Secretary of State and a foreign minister of Iran since before the revolution.
0: And remind our listeners who the P5 plus one are, who who make up these characters.
1: The P5 plus one are the permanent members of the Security Council, the United States, Great Britain, France, Russia, China, And the plus one is Germany because they had started with the Europeans, with France and Great Britain many years ago to try to negotiate with the Iranians. And there was a UN Security Council resolution that had called for the high representative of the European Union to coordinate these talks. So in the United States, we call this the P5 plus one talks. Uh, In Europe, they call it the E3 plus EU plus three talks, putting us with uh, Russia and China And putting all of the Europeans together. So even the nomenclature uh, tells you something about the complexity of doing this kind of diplomacy.
0: Well, there's another piece to that complexity, which is you're a woman. And uh, what did it mean working with people that you couldn't shake hands with?
1: Well, first of all, uh, Madeleine Albright, uh, my business partner, and, and obviously once my Boston former Secretary of State, once told me that when you sit across a negotiating table, you're not Wendy Sherman, you're not a woman. In my case, you're not an American Jew, also difficult in this circumstance. You are the United States of America, and that's pretty powerful. So I always kept that in mind. And I think between being the United States of America and being uh, an older uh, American, I had less trouble than perhaps a younger woman might have. Uh, but you're right, I could not shake hands. It was very awkward. Uh, I sort of would put my hand over my chest and slight uh, nod of my head instead of shaking hands. It sort of looks like a Marx Brothers routine if you're in the middle of a room filled with men, but nonetheless. And so one day, trying to find some common ground with Abbas Arachi and Majid Ravanchi, I started a conversation about this. I said, you know, it's sort of awkward. I can't shake your hands. It's a little unusual. But I, in fact, grew up in a Jewish community, and in Orthodox Judaism, uh, most men won't shake hands with a woman who isn't their wife or daughter or mother. It was a very fascinating conversation. They were, at first, surprised that I raised this. But it gave us a different way of thinking about each other. And obviously, even more odd in some ways since Iran believes that Israel should be wiped off the face of the earth and there are deniers of the Holocaust. So it was an unusual conversation, but I thought an important one to just lay it all on the table.
0: I want to keep us on the negotiations, but I was struck reading your book that it's a feminist book, and especially at the moment we're in right now. uh, You talk about welling up with tears
1: in fury more than once, and I want you to kind of go into that for a minute. Sure. Um, You know, as a woman somewhere along the line, I was taught, and I think most women are taught, you're not supposed to get angry. Uh, And so when I get angry, I cry, because crying is something women are permitted to do. I've tried over the years to stop it. (laughs) I dig my fingernails into my hand. It does no good. Uh, So I've just come to accept that's what I have to live with. And one of the last pieces of the negotiation was the UN Security Council resolution, uh, which, although not fundamentally a part of the negotiation, had to be reconciled with previous resolutions now that we had, we were hopefully going to have a deal. It was day 25 of the 27 days of the last round at the Palais Cobourg, a time I ate exactly one meal outside the hotel. None of us had had much sleep. I'd put a piece of paper in the middle of the table of elements that I thought could work, a couple of different options to get to some of the details we needed in the resolution. And Abbas Arachi said, OK, I think this one can work. And I thought, oh, we're, we're actually going to get this deal done. And then he said, but one more thing, uh, and, uh, which is a totally Iranian uh, tactic. There's always one more thing that they need. And I was furious. I was furious because of the delay and the extension of the talks My plan for the fall when I was going to retire from the State Department to go to Harvard was now completely screwed up. And I was most furious because they were putting the entire deal at risk at this 11th hour. And so I started to yell and get angry and say, you've put this all at risk. And no matter what I did, I could not stop the tears from streaming down my face. Everybody was silent. This was a Wendy Sherman they hadn't seen before— And after what seemed like a long time, but I guess was not, a boss leaned forward and said, okay, we're done. Uh, So I would never urge women to adopt this as a tactic, but I tell the story in the book because we are most powerful when we are our authentic selves. And when we try to be other than our authentic selves, we undermine our own power.
0: There's a moment towards the end of the negotiations where uh, men are texting each other there are too many women involved. Who were the women in the room at the time, and and what was the reaction? And how did you even find out about those text messages?
1: Well, I've talked to some of the ministers since this tale, and they they say they don't remember this at all. But we were working on the final agreement after we'd come to closure. Uh, Helga Schmidt, just an extraordinary diplomat, uh, Helga and I, uh, a couple of her team, who happened to be women as well, uh, were trying to get the pieces together and uh, the agreement. And the ministers had gone off with a couple of eights because not all the ministers were there uh, to, a din- to have dinner together. And I'm not going to say who started to text us messages that uh, some of the ministers were saying uh, they didn't know why this was taking so long. If they'd been doing it, not We women, um, it would be done by now. Uh, Helga and I decided to ignore uh, the misogyny and just get the work done. And I think that women in general are about getting the work done.
0: These are funny, small details that I picked up as I read, but one of the things that also stood out for me was the importance of the whiteboard and, and the sort of impermanence of the moment until it was ready for permanence.
1: Yeah, We live in a world of technology and spiffy things, and certainly nuclear weapons are very complicated uh, issues, which is why Secretary Moniz, our Secretary of Energy, was so indispensable to this negotiation in the last six months of the negotiation. But uh, there was a point um, where we were getting to the point where we had to put things down on paper, and we were having a very difficult time because the Iranians We're very concerned about things being on paper because then they'd have to take them back to Tehran, get new instructions. Their politics might pick those pieces apart. And so it occurred to me that we should use a low-tech solution to this. So I asked my team to find a very large wheeled whiteboard, brought it into the room, put every element of the deal on the whiteboard. Then we sat there and um, went through each element. Everybody, of course, took furious notes, and then were able to transmit those positions back to their governments without it being final. Uh, so it was incredibly helpful device, and uh, it almost came to disaster because one of the other teams used a regular marker as opposed to a whiteboard marker and couldn't erase the numbers. Uh, they ultimately figured a way to sort of scratch them out of the board Uh, But it was a very useful, low-tech device. And so sometimes the most obvious solutions are quite simple and quite low-tech.
0: You actually spill blood in the middle of this. You're running to talk to Secretary Kerry, and you smack into a wall and break your nose.
1: Yeah, there were a lot of mishaps. Um, Minister Zarif had a very bad back, got the flu a couple of times. Secretary Kerry, of course, broke his femur. Uh, Ali Salihi had surgery in the middle of this. Uh, and I was rushing up to our delegation room at the Palais Cobourg in Vienna, where we did these negotiations. An elevator went up to this suite so that it was secure because we had secure communications equipment in it. It had glass doors after you got out of the elevator, they were usually open. I was rushing quite late at night to get to the phone for Secretary Kerry. Someone had closed those glass doors. I smashed into them, started bleeding like mad. Uh, The guys around me said, you know, call an ambulance. I said, no, no, you're clearly not mothers. When you hit your nose, you bleed a lot. Get me an ice pack. I did the phone call with Secretary Kerry. He didn't know for months it had happened. Um, One night when we were telling war stories, I told him. uh, But I went the next day, saw the um, ear, nose, and throat doctor who— took care of the opera stars in Vienna, and he walked out into the anteroom to greet me and said in English, shit happens. Uh, It turned out I'd broken it in several places. These days, unless your nose goes at a 90-degree angle and it disturbs your breathing, you don't do much. He packed it up. Um, Makeup helped with most of the black and blue, a lot of Advil, and um, most of my colleagues never knew it happened.
0: So let's go back to those first meetings. After the UNGA, you go on to Oman. In a secret meeting, you're not even allowed to tell your husband about where you're going, what you're doing. What were you after?
1: Uh, What I was after is to come to better understand the secret negotiations, the bilateral negotiations, learn the folks involved, the elements of the agreement that was coming together, with brackets, of course, to be brought into the P5 plus 1. And as it turned out, uh, in uh, October... Uh, Late October, I actually uh, went to Brussels with permission uh, from the president to tell the P5-plus-1 that we'd been having these secret negotiations for quite some time and that we wanted to bring a bracketed document into a P5-plus-1 meeting of ministers in Geneva in just a couple weeks' time. It was difficult, uh, but we found our way forward.
0: And one of the pieces that you revealed to them at that point is that the Obama administration has agreed to enriching uranium in small amounts. Can can you explain what you had been saying on the one hand and what had been backchanneled?
1: The United States had been saying in every formal meeting that Iran should have no enrichment facilities or enrichment processes whatsoever. Enriching uranium is one of the methods, the other being uh, plutonium, uh, to get material of such a grade that it can be used in a nuclear weapon. And we wanted forever to shut it down and have none. But the president had come to realize that people cannot unlearn what they know, that he would consider Iran having a very small, limited, civil nuclear program, which is permitted under the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, if it were... Quite aggressively monitored and verified. That piece uh, was quite acceptable to the P5 plus one. They were just irritated like mad that the United States had put this on the table after arguing for so long that they never would. Were they angry
0: that there was back channeling that they hadn't been aware of as well? Or was it more about this specific point?
1: I think it was about all of it. The thing about power is. All of my colleagues understood that the United States had an unequal amount of power in this instance. Although the Europeans' sanctions on oil were quite significant, the US economic sanctions are the most powerful in the world because we are the reserve currency of the world. People want to be able to connect to our banks. Uh, Oil is traded in dollars. We have unparalleled economic power. We also have the military power that if, in fact, things did not work out with Iran and the day came when military action was necessary, it was going to be the U.S. that would have to lead the way. So I think what was most difficult is here I was their counterpart, their colleague, and I was exerting power uh, in a room that was going to have to be accepted by them all. So the
0: moment passes. Here you are, you've offered this thing that the Iranians have been asking for, the P5 plus one, except for the United States, had more or less agreed to already. What were the remaining sticking points that allows the negotiations to continue for so many more months?
1: Hundreds of sticking points, literally thousands of sticking points. What came out of the secret channel two months roughly after the meeting in Brussels was the Joint Plan of Action, which was an interim agreement that froze and rolled back some of Iran's nuclear programs in exchange for some small lifting of sanctions. And it was thought that that would give us six months to negotiate a final agreement. It actually took us nearly 18 months to finalize the final Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, The final agreement was 110 pages long. It included a series of very complex, detailed annexes. This is a very technical agreement. I'm sure President Trump has never read it. I'm sure most of the Republican senators and probably some of the Democratic senators as well have never read it um, because it is a very, very complex agreement.
0: So often pointed out are not putting enough pressure on missile production and also looking at Iran's support for bad actors, Hezbollah, Assad. How did that play a role in these negotiations, those two pieces?
1: The Joint Conference of Plan of Action was solely about Iran's ambition for nuclear weapons and to ensure that Iran would never be able to obtain a nuclear weapon by closing down their ability to get fissile material by uranium enrichment, fissile material by production of weapons-grade plutonium, and fissile material production through covert means. It achieved that. It did not take on everything else, all of which are of tremendous concern, because if you try to do it all at once, then Iran can say, okay, I'll tell Hezbollah to stop sending so many rockets into Israel, but I want more advanced centrifuges, in my civil program. So you end up negotiating elements one against the other. And the president thought, and I think he was right, that we had to first ensure that Iran never obtained a nuclear weapon, because if they obtained a nuclear weapon, their ability to project power into the region and to deter our and our allies' and partners' actions would have been profound. So we wanted to get that off the table, knowing that we had sanctions still in place on their state sponsorship of terrorism, missile production and transfer of missile technology, arms sales, human rights violations, etc. So we still had plenty of tools in an aggressive way to go after their malign behavior in the region, but we couldn't try to stuff it all into one deal because we would likely have moderated every single element of that deal one against the other.
0: Of course, towards the end of the negotiations, you have this major moment when Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu shows up and delivers an unusual speech in front of Congress, lambasting the idea of of negotiating with Iran. Did it throw a wrench into the negotiations for you?
1: How much of a role did it play? and, And what did that pressure do? Well, it certainly wasn't a great day. There is no question that the Prime Minister coming to a joint session that Speaker Boehner had arranged without letting the White House know, without letting the minority know on Capitol Hill, was a real hit against what we were trying to do. It was followed by, sometime thereafter, by a letter uh, spearheaded by Senator Cotton, where 47 Republican senators wrote to Iran and said, "Uh, you should just know this will only last for this administration. It won't last beyond that. Uh, So all of these things were tough. But one thing you learn as a negotiator is to try to use whatever gets thrown at you in the best way you can. And the Iranians always said to us what a hard time they had with their modulus, which is their version of a parliament. So when these things happened in Congress, we said to them, you know, you always complain you're the victim and we have to help you out. Well, look at our politics. They're not very easy either. Uh, And so you have to take our concerns into account. Um, There were times when uh, the supreme leader of Iran, uh, after we thought we had reached the broad parameters for a final agreement, uh, which was achieved in Lausanne, uh, Switzerland, we thought we were well on our way uh, to getting the final agreement. And then the uh, supreme leader of Iran gave a speech that said none of these parameters were accurate, none of this was true. Uh, he said a whole bunch of what we perceive to be new red lines. Uh, so there were many, many difficult times uh, during this negotiation, moments when uh, Secretary Kerry and I thought we'd have to go to the president and say, this is not going to happen. But you have to see if, in fact, you can hold on to the interests, make sure you achieve your objectives, but find your way through.
0: Over the time of those two years, you do find common ground, and and you spend a tremendous amount of time with these people, both your P5 plus one counterparts and the Iranians. How important was it to
1: develop sort of human interaction in this? How how did that change something? Well, I think you have to find common ground, and part of the way you do that is through human interaction. When uh, Abbas Arachi and I both became grandparents uh, during this negotiation, we swapped photographs, and it just allowed us to understand that we were actually individuals doing the best for our country's interests. It doesn't change how tough you are in the negotiating room, but it does create a better environment to meet your interests.
0: You mentioned the Republican letter warning that it would only last an administration.
1: And here we are. And here we are. Where were you when Trump gave his speech? And, And where do we go from here? I was walking the cobblestone streets of Vieta Malta. Strangely enough, uh, and actually, my cell phone rang, and it was John Kerry calling. I think, in part, to commiserate, but also for both of us to sort of urge each other to fight on. One of the things I talk about in the book is persistence, mm-hmm. which is not the same as patience. Persistence means you keep trying. You look for getting to peace and security wherever you can. But sometimes that means letting go and looking to fight another day. I think that what we did in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was absolutely the right thing to do. That deal did prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, which is the objective that President Obama set out. So yes, it's hard on me personally that the president walked away. Uh, It's hard on all the people, the hundreds of people in the US government who worked on this. it took more than a village to get this deal done. But the worst outcome is that I think it undermines the security of the United States of America. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which never wanted the JCPOA, has increased its activity in the Middle East, not decreased it, in the face of the president's actions and the reimposition of sanctions. Uh, the president would argue that's because we gave Iran all of this cash. They actually didn't get so much cash. Uh, The IRGC doesn't need very much money to do what it does in the Middle East. Uh, And I think we lost an opportunity to have a channel of dialogue to really tackle these other issues. And that is now all gone. And then finally, and humanly important, there are Americans sitting in Evan Prison today and no answer to Robert Levinson's whereabouts, The American who has been missing for so long, uh, and we no longer have a channel to discuss how to resolve those cases, get the Americans home, uh, bring Robert Levinson home.
0: So are there no back channels? You're not back channeling with the Iranians?
1: I'm not back channeling with the Iranians. I do see the Iranians when they come to the United States. I was in a small group meeting with President Rouhani last week at the U.N. General Assembly. I will see Minister Zarif. Uh, for a meeting. But in those meetings, I represent my country. I'm a patriot for my country. I want Iran to continue to comply with the deal. I want Iran to find a way to bring the Americans home. I want them to stop their malign behavior in the Middle East. So any objectives that I discuss with the Iranians are the objectives of preserving the security of the United States of America. It's been my habit to uh, call Uh, my administration counterpart before and after these meetings, and I will continue to do that.
0: There was a lot of talk around how humiliation would keep the Iranians from the table again. A lot of this had been around saving face. Have we lost that space?
1: Well, I think we've lost that space right now. You know, I would hope Uh, Even though I don't think the president made the right decision at all, and I think he continues to make decisions that make this harder, uh, I do hope for the safety and security of our country that the United States and Iran find a way to talk with each other again, whether that's quietly, in secret, or whether that is in a public negotiation, Um, whatever works, because I think not to do so will only increase the risk to our security.
0: Ambassador Sherman, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you're very, very busy.
1: Well, I think you're very, very busy too. Uh, So I appreciate uh, your taking the time to do this interview uh, and thank all of your listeners for their interest in national security and foreign policy.
0: That was Wendy Sherman. Her new book is called Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence. The ER is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host.